turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The Answer. Hour number two underway now, nine minutes past 10 o'clock. Great conversation last half hour with Bill O'Reilly. I expect a much better one now with Peter Kersenow, who joins us for a Wednesday edition of this Kersenow report, if you will. Pete uh, was unavailable yesterday. He asked if he could come to today, and we, of course, are more than happy to accommodate. Pete, of course, is a member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. He is a Cleveland attorney. He is a best-selling author, columnist for National Review and others, as well as a very highly sought-after pundit on on Fox News and other uh, news programs. Pete, good morning, my friend. How are you? I'm doing pretty great, Bob. For somebody living in Biden's Socialist States of America, you know, um, yeah, things are going swimmingly for me. <laughs> it is every bit that Peter Kirsten. Now it is every bit that. Uh, let's uh, let's dive in. I I, I I would always love to talk about uh, pleasantries and sports with you, but Pete. If I did a story and I asked you, hey, let's talk about critical race theory, because this is something being pushed by Black Lives Matter, it would just be another story, because we've covered that. We know that black, well, that's what Black Lives Matter is pushing. We know that critical race theory is pushed by trained Marxists. We know it is pushed by Antifa. We know all of these kinds of things. But the story that I have for you today, Peter Kersenow, is critical race theory being taught by another name and pushed by the Biden administration. Not by a radical fringe group, an activist group, Pete. The Biden administration has issued guidance for school reopening. And that guidance involves promoting a radical <clears throat> activist group's handbook that advocates for educators to, quote, disrupt whiteness and other forms of oppression. End quote. Literally saying whiteness is a form of oppression. Being white makes you an oppressor. 
The group is called the Abolitionist Teaching Network. They have a handbook out that the um, Biden administration, by way of the Department of Education, is uh, pushing to schools across the country. It's a guide for racial justice and abolitionist social and emotional learning. And just to give people a quick background on what it is, as a couple of examples, abolitionist teachers should build a school culture that engages in healing and advocacy that requires uh, a commitment to learning from students, families, and educators who disrupt whiteness and other forms of oppression. The materials referenced by the Department of Education of Joe Biden um, include uh, outlines on how abolitionist teachers should guide students toward abolitionist social and emotional learning. In addition to finding educators committed to disrupting whiteness, the guide says teachers should remove all punitive or disciplinary practices that spirit murder black, brown, and indigenous children. You heard that correctly. Spirit murdering black, brown, and indigenous children happens when you engage in punitive or discipline against them. The guide notes that social and emotional learning can be a covert form of policing used to punish, criminalize, and control black, brown, and and indigenous children, and that um, teaching and learning standards, as well as teacher evaluations, this is coming from the Biden administration's Department of Education, teaching standards and teacher evaluations should be, quote, grounded in the pursuit of black, brown, and indigenous liberation, criticality, excellence, and joy, end quote. In other words, white children, your, your liberation and joy and excellence, you need not apply. The goal of all education standards should be to make black, brown, and indigenous, indigenous, liber, uh, indigenous children liberated, excellent, and joyful. I could go on. There's a ton more, but I'll stop there, Pete, just to let you get going couple of things, Bob. First, uh, you recited that uh, litany of things that this is supposed to advance, if you want to call it advancement, but, or promote. Uh, you didn't hear anywhere in there. I went through it. I went through all that material. You didn't hear anything in there about proving reading scores, math scores, science, or anything else. Here's what happened this week. Some people were excited because... Remember a few months ago, the Biden administration had um, requested comments on a proposed rule that it was anticipating promulgating that would have promoted directly from the Department of Education critical race theory in the 1619 project. And they would have funded it to the tune of $7 billion, which would have made it very difficult for any schools that were opposed to teaching critical race or 1619 project to resist. I mean, it's just a natural human condition. School board members would say, we got to take some of this money because their potential opponents in the next race would say, how come you didn't uh, take the money for our school district? Uh, so that's what they were trying to do. Well, many of us, in fact, 33,000 Americans sent comments in opposition to that proposed rule, including yours truly and the members of the 1776 Commission and others. Beginning of this week, there was some excitement among many conservatives. I was skeptical, but there was excitement because the Biden administration had indicated they were rescinding that proposed rule. And some news reports had um, credited the overwhelming number of negative commentary related to the rule for that rescission. I was skeptical because I've been on this earth more than two seconds, and you 
pretty much know that this was just the first salvo or a feint for going in different directions. So rather than do this directly and get the political blowback, what the Biden administration is trying to do now is subcontract the critical race theory 1619 project to this group, this uh, abolition of whatever they want to call themselves. Abolitionist um, teaching network, they call themselves. Exactly. They're very good. They're yeah. very good, by the way, with their language. You know, of course, it's like equity. You know, how, who could be against equity? I mean, that sounds like equality. They use abolitionist teaching. Now, who could possibly oppose, oppose an abolitionist? Remember, abolitionists are the ones who ended slavery. They're certainly for the, the betterment of, of, of minorities. So, you know, if you oppose the abolitionist teaching network, you oppose abolition. You wish there was still slavery. They, they are so good at, at their, you know, defining terms and things like that to to put people on their on the defensive yeah Uh, they're good at it because the media will run with it uncritically most of us now fully recognize i mean i talked to people by the way you were correct in terms of i had a speaking engagement last week uh and (laughs) got it down correctly it was the east side east side republican party and they were phenomenal folks and we spoke about critical race theory and many of us if not most of us get it we get that the media and then democrats are going to try to obfuscate what they're truly up to by using all kinds of words to make it seem all benign but we we are onto this and have been for quite some time what is horrendous about this Well, we could talk about this for hours as to what's horrendous about this. But as I said at the outset, nowhere in that description of what these folks are about did you hear anything about actually improving educational outcomes for black and brown students since they're focused on that. They like to focus on this, (laughs) this chimera of white supremacy. Bob? Everyone should just pause for a second, and I know your listeners are are astute enough to understand this, but apparently major media doesn't think we are. Pause for a second and ask yourself, go through every major city with their school districts across the country and ask yourself, when's the last time you saw a white superintendent, a white administrator, or even a white mayor in many of these places? And for some places, it's been as many as 40 or 50 years. It's even longer when you ask, when's the last time you saw a Republican? In Chicago, it's been 100 years. In Baltimore, it's been 70 years. In, in Detroit, it's been nearly 70 years. It goes on and on and on. There's not a white person in sight who's in a position of power with respect to education over these black and brown students, and yet they have to abolish or eradicate whiteness. This is the stupidest thing imaginable. But what it's designed to do, Bob, make no mistake about it, it's designed to, number one, augur more power to the Democrats slash progressives, but also to obfuscate their manifest failures over decades to educate black and brown students. So they shift the blame to somebody who's not even there. Then on top of that, think about some of the stats. By the way, you know, we've addressed this kind of stuff. In fact, I just finished writing... Uh, a statement at the Civil Rights Commission related to a report we had on this. And my statements are usually in dissents these days. But in any event, um, we've looked at some of the data related to educational outcomes in most of the major urban areas, almost all of which are run by black administrators. You know, 80%, 90% of the teachers are black. Uh, 80%, 90% of the students are black. Let's just Take Baltimore, which is just a representative example. Not everybody's as bad as Baltimore, but some aren't even as good as Baltimore. In Baltimore, just this past year, 41% of Baltimore students 
had a GPA below 1.0. I'll say that again. 41% of Baltimore City school children had a GPA below a D. One student passed only three classes in four years, failed 22 classes, had a GPA of, ready for this, 0.13, and was ranked in the top half of his class. <laughs> the only reason that made the news is because finally his mother found out about it after four years. Now, we can make some commentary about that, but I'll reserve comment on that for a second, for, or at least for, for this particular segment. But his mother found out about it and became outraged, and that's how it became news. It's not that he was an anomaly. He was part of the 41% who are in the same position. 0.13 GPA. He's in the top half of his class, and yet the Biden administration is trying to tell us this is a result of white supremacy. Well, I'll give him this. If the Biden administration is going to promote this abolitionist group, then it is in part a product of white supremacy since Biden is white. This is one of the most pernicious things imaginable. If there were going to be riots related to Black Lives Matter, it should be about things like this. We're destroying not one, not 100, not 1,000, but millions of of children's futures by signing on to this toxic poison that doesn't advance them, gets them involved in racist navel-gazing, and will get them to blame every failure on their part on some mythical white supremacist out there. I'll say this, Bob. I've been a member of the Civil Rights Commission longer than anybody else. I pour over data all the time. I sit through hearings, and in, those, in 20 years of being on the Civil Rights Commission, maybe there are better and smarter people than me, and I'll concede that in a moment. And they have more information than I do about these kinds of matters, but I pour over all the statistics related to alleged race-hate crimes, white supremacist groups, and everything like that. And when the whole notion of white supremacy being abundant in the land came up a few years ago, I was like, what did I miss? Was I sleeping through something? We are being fed I hate using, hype, uh, you know, these kind of histrionic terms, but we're being fed lies on a regular basis. These lies have serious consequences. And what you're seeing by the Biden administration is consigning black people into educational oblivion. And more people need to stand up and really just revolt against this. If they're going to be burning flags and stuff, burn any kind of flag related to this kind of ideology. This is going to, it, it will end up, and I think a lot of people know this, based on many of the, the presentations I've given to some of your, your uh, listeners, Bob, including the folks last week. I've never seen uh, the Republican bases energized about a single issue as I, I have with respect to critical race theory, and for good reason. And with darn good reason. Exactly. Yes. And Pete, you know, we'll talk more about this after the break here, but you, because you have covered this before, and I think it was in Florida, but in other places where policies like the one I just read to you about not using any punitive or disciplinary measures because that spirit murders black and brown children, what that does to the learning environment in those schools uh, and what it does uh, to the other kids. So uh, we can talk more about that too as we continue with Peter Kirsten now on AM 1420 The Answer.
Okay, 1025, uh, right back with Kirsten. Now, Pete, do you remember what I was referring to there? And I think it was an Obama-era, administration-era, uh, you know, set of policies that schools had been adopting, in particular, I, I want to say in Florida, and I don't know if it was under consent decree or not, but essentially saying if you are black or brown, you will not be punished, you will not be disciplined yep. because of the disparity of disciplinary engagements by race. Right. Because more yeah. white kids weren't being suspended, given detentions, or whatever the case might be. So in order to balance that out, black and, and brown kids were not going to be suspended or, or, or disciplined, no matter what kind of harm they may do to themselves, to classroom and environments, to other students. Can you refresh yeah. us on that? Exactly. We talked about this a couple of times, Bob, and it's extremely important. Thanks for bringing it up. Uh, this was a policy implemented by the Obama administration under the auspices of the Department of Education's Office of Civil, Civil Rights, headed at the time by Catherine Lehman, who then became the chair of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Okay, guess what? The Biden administration is now try has nominated her for that same position again, and the hearings on that were this week. And the Wall Street Journal and other publications have been on this, thankfully. But the point is this. When we looked at the data related to this, oh, by the way, you're right about the school disciplinary policy. They wanted to equalize the number of disciplinary actions taken against black and brown kids so it wasn't disproportionate to that of white and Asian kids. The problem with that is self-evident to anybody with a brain. And that is that, unfortunately, for a whole host of reasons, but these are the facts, black kids are far more likely to engage in the kind of conduct that would result in disciplines related to suspensions, expulsions, etc. I mean, the kind of severe kind of disruptions that would cause that. We could talk about this if at length for all the disruptions and the consequences to the educational environment, the ability of students to learn. But what happened as a result of this attempt to equalize outcomes, regardless of the culpability of the student engaging in, you know, acts of violence, for example, was that kids who otherwise would have been suspended or expelled remained in school, so they disrupted class in the learning environment. But more importantly, perhaps, is there was considerable more violence. I mean, there was a significant spike in violence as a result of this because what happened? The kids who were violent remained in school. They couldn't be expelled. Otherwise, they would have been affected. The schools would have been subject to oversight by the Office of Civil Rights. Their funding could have been jeopardized. So they decided to, as we say in the parlance, quote unquote, get their numbers right. That is regardless. And the kids knew it. The kids knew knew it. They knew they couldn't be disciplined. Precisely right. So we had, for, I'll give you one example, one teacher testify in front of us. I, if, my, my memory is fading on this, but I think she was from Buffalo. She had brain damage because she'd been assaulted by a kid who knew nothing could happen to him. And, and we had a number of school personnel, teachers, administrators talking about the disruption to the, envir- the school environment, the amount of violence going on, the disruption to the classroom, kids who wanted to learn, didn't learn, and those were invariably black and brown students, because most of these, many of these schools have significant minority populations. This rule did incredible damage to the ability of people to learn who wanted to learn and just as importantly Pete, Pete, let me let me ask a follow-up question in the middle of that and i know it's just said i only have a minute left in this segment um this was all before the crt push that is underway yep. right now that demonizes white kids now what i mean by that is 
if the same principles are applied, as we just heard in the Abolitionist Teaching Network, that were applied in what you just described from the Obama administration's guidelines, that brown and black kids can't be disciplined or punished because in one case you're spirit murdering them, and in the other case the, the numbers are off, so we have to even these things out. And add that to now they're being taught that little white kids are white oppressors. They're oppressors and that they're racist and that they're evil and they are. we have to disrupt their whiteness. How is that not going to lead to white kids getting the living hell beaten out of them on a daily basis by every brown and black thug that's in the schools? If if the thugs know they can't be touched. Right now, we have seen an uptick, and we saw this the last time, the Obama administration with Catherine Lehman at the helm of the OCR, the Office of Civil Rights, there was a significant uptick in violence, but it mainly occurred, or not mainly, that's not right, the the most significant spike occurred in violence against Asian kids. When you look at... That's another issue. You know, it, it was pretty significant, too. Now, when you look at the amount of disciplinary actions that uh, school kids get based on race, uh, blacks by far are the most, then followed by Hispanics, then followed by whites, then followed by Asians. Asians hardly engage in any kind of, of disruptive activity. Those are just the facts, okay, regardless of what people want to say about it, Those are the facts. Right. So when you have this kind of suspension of the rules, so to speak, for for violent kids, all violent kids, the disproportionate number of which are black and brown, and then you introduce some kind of an element of blame to it, well, yeah, there's going to be. It's human nature, except that the socialists, unfortunately, who run much of our bureaucracy right now, don't believe in human nature. They believe in human engineering, and they think somehow by engaging in these stupid constructs of proportional disciplinary action and all the other things they want to do on a quota basis, that somehow that's going to yield an optimal outcome, but history shows the opposite is true. So the, the Trump administration, Betsy DeVos, to her credit, issued a rule that, that eliminated that proportional discipline on the basis of race. School violence, well, what do you expect would happen? Of course, it went down. The learning environment improved. In other words, better outcomes for black and brown students. Apparently, nobody cares about white and Asian students. But to the extent you care about black and brown students, what the Trump administration d- did was improving the outcome. Now, Catherine Lehman, just this week, was going through her nomination hearing for assuming that same position again. And I'm here to tell you, bad things are going to happen for, guess what? black and brown students, That's right. but all students. And for all students, everybody's going to pay the price under this. Pete, let's jump in here because it's news time at 10.32. We're going to come back. Yesterday marked the six-month anniversary of the Biden administration, inaugurated six months ago yesterday. We're going to talk about where we are in this country after six months of Biden-Harris coming up after this. Okay, I'm going to say this again as we continue with Kersenow. Everything you just heard Peter talking about, all of the information you just heard, is why you need to run for public, uh, for uh, your uh, local public school district's board. Uh, every single county, all 88 Ohio counties, have um, board openings in odd-numbered years. Sometimes it's two out of five. There's five members on every board, maybe two seats, maybe three, maybe four, if some people don't want to run for re-election. 
there are new opportunities for us to take back the boards and not allow this type of divisive, horrific, racist curriculum to be forced uh, onto your kids and into your kids' minds, indoctrinating them in the worst possible of ways. So you've got to do this, and I'll tell you again, deadline to file your petition to run for school board in every county is uh, August 4th. So you've got literally 14 days. By the end of business, August 4th, you've got to have your petition in, your signatures. I think you have to get 150 signatures. It's not that many. It ought to be easy enough to do. Let's get those school boards back. All right. Now, having said that, Peter Curse now, let's dive back in bigger picture, away from just the issue of schools and race and CRT. Yesterday was the anniversary. I asked the audience this question yesterday and got very little response because I think that the question is pretty much self-answered. In what way, over the first six months of the Biden administration, has Joe Biden improved this country or improved our lives? In what way? Single policy, uh, an executive order, a piece of legislation signed, any decision whatsoever that Joe Biden has made in six months on the job that has improved this country and made it better. Can you think of anything? I can't, no, and that's an outstanding question, because what we've got, and you and I have discussed about it, and I typically rant about this in different presentations I give, is a media that is not simply just compliant. They are corrupt uh, beyond belief. In our lifetimes, we've never seen anything like this, and they're trying to make us believe that what's happening in the United States of America is good because the bad orange man is gone, and that's all that needed to be done. What's missing is the fact that the bad orange man had so many different successes that no other president in the modern era had accomplished and made lives palpably better for the majority of Americans and improved improved overall things such as national security and, and improved lives for people across the world. But because he was the bad orange man and they were successful in getting rid of him, anything that the you know stumbling, bubbling uh, cadaver in the White House does is necessarily better by comparison. But nothing is. Just look at the fact that we've got the worst inflation that we've had, you know, depending on which measure you look at. And I've looked at a couple of different measures of this. The um, most charitable one toward Biden is it's the worst inflation in 20 years. I happen to think it's, it's more than that, and I've seen you know, some uh, Wall Street uh, people say that's the worst inflation at least since the Carter era. Uh, and that takes us back, you know, 40 plus years. Look at the crime spikes across the country. Uh, now, that may not directly be related to policies of Biden, but it's surely related to his advocacy. That is, he was in favor of the defunding of the police. Now they're trying to say, no, 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 we never were. No, 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 because they've seen the carnage that has occurred, mainly in Democratic strongholds. You look at things such as the crisis and its true crisis on the border. It's just, it's, it's nuts, but it's being implemented by their policies in an affirmative fashion. It's not merely their neglect or nonfeasance. They are actively promoting this influx at the border of people we don't even know who they are, but we've all seen the images of people coming from all over the world, not simply Central America or Mexico. And the Biden administration is affirmatively resettling those folks in places throughout the heartland truly astonishing in violation of the law and his affirmative obligation to make sure that he enforces border immigration law. Uh, yeah, there's so many other things. The Iran nuke deal, which has always been something that I consider to be the worst deal in the history of the United States, and they're trying just 
to resurrect the whole thing. Middle East peace going down the drain. All the jobs that were lost because of inane policies on behalf of Biden, in fact, in his first day of office, has been often talked about the stroke of a pen and disrupting the Keystone Pipeline. It's extraordinary, but one thing alone is going to be out there. It's, it's a specter looming on the horizon that's going to get here very fast, and it has already in terms of inflation, is this insane, that's the only way you can describe it, insane spending we've never seen even remotely approached at any point in our history. You do not have to be an economist, and preferably you shouldn't be an economist, at least not one who talks about things in a political fashion. But all you have to do is be someone who has been alive for at least 30 years and has a little bit of common sense to see that this is unsustainable. Aside from inflation, it's going to have a number of just horrible consequences, both in the short term and definitely in the long term. We can't afford this. The money is not there. We're spending ourselves into oblivion. This is being done purposely so that certain systems will will crater and the federal government is going to have to take them over. That's not hyperbole and that's not a conspiracy theory. They're talking about it themselves. So there's so many things that are happening that are hurting Americans, let alone this policy or these various policies they've implemented related um, or surrounding COVID that are discouraging people from going back to work. That's going to have both short-term and long-term consequences. So in the main, we're in this bubble where the media is telling us, you know, nothing to see here, move along, everything is fine, everything's okay, go back to sleep. And we are kind of treading water for the moment. But at some point, reality is going to intrude. My, my biggest fear is reality is going to intrude in the form of a more aggressive China and or Russia or any of our other adversaries such as Iran, but mainly China because they have seen the Biden administration is supine when it comes to anything they do related to cyber hacking, uh, you know, incursions on some of our allies and that means that you know, weakness invites aggression. And the flashpoint that is most concerning, you know, smarter people than me are people who are engaged in this kind of, of study. But to me, the most concerning flashpoint, obviously, is Taiwan. China, at some point, thinks you know, they know they've got a window. They study this stuff like crazy. And, uh, you know, they're looked for the long term. What, what can they do if, if Biden is not the president in two years, four years, if a Trump-like figure is president in four years, their window is closed. They understand that. They've got a thousand generals studying just that. Just that. They've got a million studies related to this. They have all kinds of war plans related to Taiwan. And at some point, the concern is in the next few years, they're going to make an incursion. It could be the next few days. They're going to make an incursion on Taiwan. And so far, with all of the flights that they've made, their jets have been flying over Taiwan. There hasn't been any pushback that we're aware of, no public pushback from the Biden administration. That's going to encourage them. That's a lot of stuff, Pete. I want to focus uh, uh, a lot on the economic portion of this and the spending that you just outlined. Um, Here's Joe Biden yesterday marking his six-month anniversary. And you're not going to be able to hear that very clearly because I don't have it plugged in properly. Apologies. Apologies. Uh, okay, yeah, this is, uh, this is Joe Biden yesterday speaking on uh, uh, his six-month anniversary. Secondly, the economy. Yesterday that I spoke of the historic economic progress we've made, which starts with the American Rescue Plan. 
shots in arms that saved a lot of lives, checks and uh, tax cuts to give them just a little extra breathing room, ordinary Americans, and, uh, and lower health care costs just when so many Americans needed that help. And it's helped create 3 million, 3 million jobs, more than any administration has done in the first six months of being in office. Again, thanks to all of you. And uh, with our bipartisan infrastructure framework and our Build Back Better plan, I think we can turn this, this great uh, movement into an uh, economic boom for some time to come. Peter, only in the mind of a leftist can you lay off you know, tens of millions of workers in a pandemic, shutting down businesses, and then have these people come back to work and then claim you created jobs. Uh, that's only in the mind of a leftist. But what's your response to what you just heard? Yeah, well, I don't think I could respond any better than you just did, Bob. But my response is we're in trouble. We have somebody in the White House who never had a clue. He's been in office for 50 years, and he was one of the most mediocre office holders. And that's saying something in all federal government, whether it's the legislature or whether it's the House of Representatives or the Senate. He was clearly throughout the most unimpressive member of the Senate. And that's saying something, too, because you have a lot of people who are just kind of walking around punching um, you know, their time cards in the Senate for a long time. Biden was one of those. But he's deteriorated even from that lowly standard. And we see it happening in real time. I don't, he never knew what he was talking about before. I don't want to say this you know, in a way that is, uh, you know, kind of pejorative or anything like this. These are observations. This is the most powerful man on the face of the earth, and we've entrusted, you know, the nuclear codes to him, but we've also entrusted much of the economy to him, and he has no clue. He has no problems, even though he has no clue, telling lies that are being placed right in front of him, and the media is force-feeding us those lies. This cannot end well. A functioning democratic republic needs to be operating for a, from a common set of facts what biden just indicated there is so divorced from reality as as to be well it's beyond useless and but it's a problem because policy at the administrative level is being made based on what he is saying and we're not addressing the things that will make the country better and we're piling on things that will make the country worse notably as we've discussed this out of control spending as a last matter bob uh, and i you do a great job of this and i know you're going to be having guests like this on you know for the next several months but anytime that a republican is being interviewed by anybody they need to be asked are they part of this you know, biden's talking about the bipartisan infrastructure plan first of all nobody knows what's in it which is par for the course in washington these days but to sign on to something that is so insanely is catastrophically just out of this universe nuts a Republican has to ask himself, what the heck am I doing? And his voters are going, to, are going to have to pose those questions to him. I don't understand any Republican who's signing on to this. If anybody in your audience is scratching their heads saying, well, how is, why is this bipartisan? Why are Republicans signing on to this? Are there good things in this? The answer to it, your intuition is right. No, it is not. It's just that remnant of the Republican Party that still likes to go along to get along, but they are destroying the United States of America in the process. 
uh, to paraphrase or to repeat what Biden says, that's not hyperbole. <laughs> no, no, that's that's exactly right. And and Pete, the last thing I want to hit you with here is and, and great response, by the way. He didn't mention inflation. I don't know if you did either. Did you mention inflation? I did. Yes, that was but, the okay. first thing I mentioned. Um, yeah. Okay, that's why I missed it. it you, you covered a lot of points. So he never talked about Biden inflation, and that's what it's going to be called from now on, Biden inflation. Um, uh, but the last thing is is going to the uh, House now. You saw that the. Members of the select committee have been appointed to uh, battle it out over what happened on January 6th. Jim Jordan is on that list. He was asked yesterday on his way to his car uh, what uh, he expects to do here and what will be the Republican uh, stand on this. And he just made a point that I think is as is, is, is obvious as the nose on your face. He said the Democrats don't want to talk about Biden's inflation. He doesn't. They don't want to talk about the border. They don't want to talk about spending. Uh, they're out of control spending. They don't want to talk about what's happening in Cuba, they don't want to talk about what's happening in China, so they're going after President Trump again. It's the only thing they can do. Uh, what do you think is going to happen with this committee? Well, we've seen um, a preview of this with uh, the 9-11, except 9-11 was by comparison more uh, bipartisan and more sane, even though that was a travesty, too. If we're going to be honest about it, it was a travesty, and it was done for political reasons. Of course, that begs the question. I mean, everything in Washington is done for political reasons. We are now, though, in an environment where the truth doesn't matter anymore, and the media doesn't care whether the truth matters. And so it's simply going to be a show trial to try to pump up what happened on January 6th, beyond that which had actually occurred. Take a look what happened just yesterday. The first of the January 6th defendants was sentenced, okay? Think about what he had to do. I mean, he was sentenced to, you know what he did? He pled guilty, of course. Um to, uh, you know, I think it was to um, being in the wrong place at the wrong time, basically. Yes, yeah, um, basically. It, well, it, yeah, kind of. I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he admitted he got caught up in it. He, he said he shouldn't have gone any further than this, this, this sidewalk outside of it, but go ahead. Yeah, it, I think it was called obstruction of official proceedings. Keep in mind that no one was charged when hundreds of people obstructed the Kavanaugh hearing by doing virtually the same thing. But That's no, right. Nothing to see here. It's not a problem. But he was sentenced to eight months. Um, he engaged in no violence. Mm-hmm. He entered the Capitol wearing a Trump shirt with a Trump flag and took a selfie with the guy with the horns, the famous guy with the horns. Yeah. And that was it. He gets eight months for that. He had to, this is, eight months is bad enough. But maybe what should be giving each one of us chills in addition to angering us to action is the fact that he was compelled to read what amounts to a loyalty oath in the United States of America. Not to the flag, not a pledge of allegiance to the flag or to protect and defend the Constitution, but he had to say, quote, Joseph R. Biden is rightfully and respectfully the President of the United States. Wow. I didn't know that. We don't that. pledge allegiance to men in this country. We pledge allegiance to the flag, the same flag that the Democrats burn and stomp on all the time while they raise the BLM flag in embassies across the country, across wow. the world. That's no, you're dangerous. right. 
Which is why, by the way, I'm uh, cheering the. I was cheering the uh, Swedish soccer team yesterday, who beat the U.S. women's Olympic team. So, uh, was, <laughs> no, you know what I mean. Why, why do I want? Why do I want people who hate our country to be on a metal stand, burning our flag, or at least uh, you know, proverbial or figuratively burning our flag by turning their back to our anthem or doing something else disrespectful? I hope the people like that lose every single match that they they participate in. All right, Pete, got to run. Great stuff. Thank you for the point. I did not know about that fealty oath that he had to take, but that's great information. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Bob. 1054, final segment coming up, AM 1420, The Answer. Okay, 10.57. Final segment is always a short one. Uh, Just a couple of notes. I got a text message from Peter Corrigan, former candidate for county executive, you recall, um, who was just at the Board of Elections right before I came on with uh, uh, Peter Kirstenau at the 10.30 segment. Um, Because I had pointed out that you have to have 150 signatures on your petition uh, to to run for for you know whatever sit whatever district's board of education, and uh, he texted me from the board of elections who said he was just there and said school races which are school board races which are nonpartisan actually only require seventy five signatures instead of one hundred and fifty, and that's even much more of a reason for you to think about this. You've got two weeks; you can easily get seventy five signatures, and we need to replace people who are trying to push. The indoctrination of Marxism into our schools by way of critical race theory and other things. We've got to replace these people with people who want schools to be about education. Schools to be about actually preparing for college or preparing for the work world or preparing for life. Not preparing to indoctrinate uh, people into uh, America-hating racist zombies. We cannot do it unless we take back the school boards. We can't control curriculum unless we are on the school boards. So you've got until August 4th. You only need 75 signatures. I was misinformed about the 150, so I'm so glad to get that clarification. Pull your petition in your local district today, and we'll talk more about it tomorrow. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks to Bill O'Reilly and to Peter Kirsten. Thanks to you. We'll see you. Bye-bye.